And yeah. one of the things that I've been trying to stress over and over is that uh, in, in every place across Europe, the Witan begins with governments uh, passing laws, announcing that uh, there is a new crime, witchcraft, and uh, introducing new regulations, introducing mm-hmm. new acts of government. This is very important because uh, it's from above that the people are told, watch out, there are these and these people, and they're doing... Uh, it, it's not something that is coming from below. One of the second things that is striking is uh, the difference in class, you know, generally, between uh, the so-called witches and the accusers. So you see there's a class difference. You see that those who are accusing them are usually the people of power in their community, people who have property. You see that it's a persecution that is a very clear-cut class character. And, and uh, there are different groups of women. You know, there are different groups of women who are, who are uh, you know, basically liable, vulnerable to accusation. Uh, it's not one group only. But they are common denominator. Generally, they're poor. They come from the lower classes. And uh, there are certain types of accusations that are very common. Women who are, you know, exercising, and, you know, healing, healing practices. You know, they yeah. basically get midwives or, or they're curing people with herbs, with sometimes with, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, charms. Uh, but right. many women had their own garden. They knew the properties of plants. They knew the properties of roots, flowers, and and they were they were the doctors. So these are women who have a certain power. Often they predicted the future. So there is the figure of the healer, and uh, she represents something in the community. And you know you have an attack on mutual aid. You have an attack on popular powers. Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host teacher and socialist Andy Lipson and writing teacher Jessica. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find that link to our blog in the episode notes uh, where we found this episode. Or uh, you can always check us out on any of other, our other platforms. You can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZPKE on Instagram and just his Twitter handle as at jhomie89. Uh, please subscribe, rate, review, uh, turn on your, your notifications and share your favorite episode wherever you are wherever on this episode. Thank you. Right. Uh, so today we continue uh, part two of the second installment of a piece written by Marxist and uh, writer Tom uh, from Free Left Future or Freie Link Zukunft in German. Uh, I apologize for the pronunciation. Uh, we did uh, an episode last week where we discussed uh, the first installment of the lo- of his long essay, uh, an incredible piece of uh, uh, titled "Virology as Ideology," 
And last week we did part one, and today we'll be doing part two. Last week, if any, if folks have been following us with this uh, uh, series, was a critique of ruling class pseudoscience, uh, and it was around science and class society. This week we'll be tackling part two of that uh, inst- um, of the four part installments, the military, academic, industrial, medical, scientific complex, or MAMES. Um, so we look forward to uh, the discussion. Tom, welcome. Uh, thank you very much for having me on again. Yes, thank you. And uh, maybe, Andy, before we begin, maybe you could share something from last week or uh, give us some reflections from the episode that we did. I mean, I think you did a good job introducing where we're kind of moving. Last week, we talked about how science is captured by capitalism it, um, and and cannot be, un- and it's not just understood as a mechanism of profit production, but a mechanism of social control for that reason. Um, and today, I think we're going to talk very, we're going to narrow in on a particular branch of science, one that's been given a lot of credit for increasing the, what is it, increasing the the mortality rate of humanity in the last century um, and other wonders that it have been, has been given credit for. Um, uh, and is the basis of a science being actually the basis of how a pseudoscience has turned into a science in all our minds and we give it such credit. Um, despite all it's, it's, it's being connected to this rotten thing called capitalism. I'll just say this. So today we're really going to just talk about the, the, the medical complex connected to the military and to science and to the, um, the government um, in that regard. So Tom, maybe a starting point is where you started that article too, which is, to, could you say a little bit about almost your, you first criticized the way the left the kind of normal critique we have of the medical industry and go then into like, no, that's only a partial critique. We have to go into a deeper critique. Um, And this led you to that name, MAMES, um, that is the title of your your, uh, part part two. So maybe you could start us off there. Yeah, so I think that the kind of criticism of um you know industrial or capitalist medical um care and science and again it's it gets clumsy kind of even trying to differentiate these because they're so um interlinked but both of these spheres roughly are, are on the whole criti- uh, criticized uh, by our comrades on the left uh, mainly in the sense that they you know defraud consumers by trying to um, sell things too expensively Right to profit in various ways, which of course they do. That that determines the structure to a significant degree. But there seems to be no sense of um, the the criminal uh, activities that these organizations you know, engage in. Even though all of them, right? For instance, um, as RFK Jr. always notes, all of the major vaccine producers are convicted criminals as corporate persons, right? Um, and yet. The, the assumption is that this kind of almost quaint libertarian fantasy of capital as the lemonade shop, you know, that they're mainly just trying to sell the best products to make the most money. Uh, there's no real appreciation, I find, of in particular um, the characteristics of monopoly capitalism, uh, the and especially something that I argue in the essay um, and that is kind of dovetails with an argument I make 
In another essay I refer to um, in the piece uh, where I've tried to point at the fact that we really need a new language, I think, to understand uh, what has really come of capitalism in the past century, really moving beyond simple monopoly or imperialist capital. And, and one of the characteristic features of that is this move beyond even mere monopoly, but that the the sellers control the uh, corporate buyers, which are um, insurance companies determining the prices or government agencies, right, which are simultaneously supposed to be regulating these organizations, but there is a revolving door between them. There is lots of money. Um, uh, lots of the regulators literally draw their income from the product. So if the industry is successful, they're drawing more um, income for the regulators, which means for their salaries and for their resources. Uh, and so there's this extremely complex bundle of relations that you know, looks so different from this picture of um, you know, capitalists just trying to produce the best product to sell it, or you know, um, and of course they they do want to sell these things, but yeah, yeah. My point is that the um, the critique remains so superficial and so distant from anything like the picture of um, the real industry that we know to be the case. Uh, and so one of my first arguments in this essay was trying to get move the the critique beyond that really superficial level. One of the things that you talk about is not just, I mean, one of one of the things that's often talked about is not that just that the medical industry, in terms of it being a monopoly and being a vast monopoly, not just Pfizer having regulatory control, but of, and regulatory capture of FDA, but essentially Pfizer is being part of a network of institutions that operate as a, as this gigantic cartel. Um, and that they don't just monopolize the market, but they monopolize the information about their own product. And it, and they, and that, that information is, is information said to the consumer, but also to the people who are selling, like who are like doctors and, and all those sorts of folks. Um, and that it, and that you can understand the, the institution when you understand it as a monopoly in this way, particularly on monopoly, that it is meant to, for profit. You actually have, it is better to understand this as a harm institution rather than a help institution because it, it will function more effectively as a, it operates as a cartel to produce that. It produce, it produces products which are, which need to make people sick so that they can then produce more products, which can then make people feel better from the thing that got them sick. And then, and it's a vicious cycle. I definitely see that going on with COVID, but maybe you should talk more about and the vaccines and myocarditis now and da, 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 da. But maybe you can talk more about that. Yeah, I think as you're right, um, the the monopoly control goes so beyond because it also um, they have the capacity in lots of ways to define to constitute the market itself and to define the boundaries. Right, so I mean they have the capacity to to a significant degree determine what can be uh, researched and what can't, what is acknowledged as legitimate science or not, and that filters into regulatory procedures in terms of determining what kind of care can be provided and what can't, uh, even so far as to force people to take certain types of medical care or undergo certain types of procedures and to pathologize them medically or psychologically if they're not. So the control of what kind of medicine, what kind of medical schools, right? We talk about the Flexner report, uh, which famously helped um, impose this monopoly and Carnegie-backed 
um, disciplining of medical institutions in the United States, uh, not coincidentally um, also ending almost all black medicine in the United States. Almost all the medical, all black medical schools were shut down as a direct consequence of the Flexner report. Um, so, of course, always overlapping these powers of structure. And then there is just the, you know, it's a point that is uh, often kind of parodied or mocked as a almost high school stoner kind of observation, right? Of course, if they had the cure to cancer, they wouldn't give it to us, so they'd hide it. But there is a core structural truth if we look at this whole institution. Obviously, everything is always a field of struggle, and people pursue their own good health. Uh, that is something that everyone is is massively incentivized to do. And so uh, the capitalist class is highly constrained in the ways in which they can force these products upon us, and they have to resort to highly sophisticated means. But from the the largest picture of abstraction, I do think there's a real truth to the fact that um, our default assumption shouldn't be uh, that the main way this organization makes its profit is from producing good health. Uh, and we know that there are massive disincentives to producing that in the long term. At the very least, it wants to do it under very narrow conditions and conditions that are constrained by the other interest and interrelations of the, um, the class society in which it's taking place. And, and I'll just add one more thing, and I do want Jessica and Eduardo to get in, but I, I feel like I have to say this because in some ways I suffered from this same illusion, and, and you brought it up in your reading where this term snake oil and snake oil salesman. So the, the snake oil salesman has often been attributed to the margins of health. These people who come to your doorstep and say, I can make you better this way, or you see these things on the fringe. And people have this sense of these people are just trying to like make money from me. So I'm going to be skeptical of them. And the entire industry that I'm actually operating in health industry, like that literally defines it. Like that actual situation defines it. And yet I don't, I, even myself, I think that somehow I never attributed the that giant fear I should have to this giant complex, whereas I look over here on the margins and I'm worried about them. I mean, I personally feel like I've suffered from that, like in terms of that contradiction in my own beliefs. Um, and I, you just pointed out so well in your article. I just wanted to say that. Was not one of the early Rockefellers a, a literal snake oil salesman? I, I remember... I think it was Corbett in one of his documentaries goes into it. Maybe Tommy, you know the backstory, but I'm pretty sure like not, not, not even on like a metaphorical level, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. That's yeah. So uh, like the John D. Rockefeller, his father um, was a, a, an actual snake oil salesman. And I mean, there is even the remarkable fact that the, the whole allopathic edifice that was uh, to a significant degree forced upon us by Rockefeller and Carnegie control, um, of uh, the kind of borders or terms of what is legitimate healthcare, a huge amount of it was structured around finding a profitable market for petroleum-derived pharmaceutical products. And so, in that sense too, it is uh, an oil market, yeah? and and that is just not appreciated. And I think, yeah, what Andy says, um, it's overwhelming how how deeply that bias has been imposed on us. And I mean, I think there's an unimaginable amount of funding. Uh, and even I think uh, on the left, we also sometimes have the default, strangely enough, of thinking about, um, even though we should be the last to fall prey to this, you know, it's, it's understandable why right wing or libertarians only think of the government as doing psychological operations. 
but the the sorts of marketing apparatus that modern capitalist enterprises control are just as sophisticated and are using just as you know complex mechanism for controlling the population they're not just putting lots of money into glossy ads and i think there's a lot of work that's gone into deeply implanting you know in all sorts of it's coded in the media you know it's coded in characters uh it's why in breaking bad there has to be this character with a imagined uh electro sensitivity that is exposed to have been a, a psychological um that he was just a crazy man who believed it. and that 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 experience is implanted in people's heads and they really feel like they've experienced the case of a crazy guy who believes he's um subjected to or he, that he's electrosensitive uh, when it was imagined. But that was fictional itself. That was a fictional character constructed to advance um, an overall um, principle that they wanted implanted in us. Uh, and I think uh, it's the same that everyone has this visceral feeling that anyone doing alternative medical care and trying to make a living is somehow a, a grifter. And there are grifters in that space, but often. I've come around to thinking that the people who are transparent about how they're making money from providing a valuable service um, are much more trustworthy than, uh, for instance, the, um, you know, these supposedly innocent providers uh, who like the, um, the uh, formula providers who make sure to be the first free information that women receive about um, how they should breastfeed their children, right? But they seem like some, you know, uninterested institution. And that's what should really, I think, raise our suspicions. Well, I was just going to bring up, um, like, I, I just, one thing that I really appreciated about the article was just the way that you kind of frame this idea of like individual choice and with the whole sort of alternative health practitioners and, grifters and I agree like of course you know there are people trying to profit off of that but I think it's it's very telling that there even is like this whole industry that's cropped up around like taking care of your health I mean like outside of the medical sphere of like you know um life coaches and nutrition advice givers and I don't know there's like the whole the whole gambit right and just like how indicative that is of how much we outsource and how just disembodied everybody is that like even the people who are seeing, you know, at least some of the issues with the medical industrial complex or with memes, there's still oftentimes this inability to really feel like, oh, I, I can take like autonomous control over my own health. And that is like, I think on some level it's sort of illusory and it's part of this like almost transhumanist like disembodiment. But at the, at the same time in your article it does a great job of highlighting this of like the material conditions, you know, and cultural, political, like all of these forces that make it impossible for people to actually pursue good health. Um, I mean, even just like, the environment in which we live, like you're, you're just, you're starting with an up uphill battle, like from even like in utero, right. Just with the level of, you know, toxins and, and yeah, like the, the EMFs is a good, a good example too. Um, 
so yeah, I was just thinking about sort of this push and pull between like, like just taking, taking control of your own health, right? Like, which has been a big, um, phrase, I feel like, especially in the past couple of years of people who are like, you know, just, just take responsibility, just, you know, say no to the jab, say no, whatever, right? Like just do yoga and, <laughs> and grow your own food. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. I guess that wasn't a question, was it? <laughs> yeah, um, but if I could just expand on your point, I do think it, it's a, it's also one of the many areas where I think we can show that um, actually, again, it's only socialism and communism that offer uh, a real avenue towards the actual flourishing and actualization of the human individual. Uh, that this fantasy of this you know, bourgeois kind of settler on the prairie uh, that can take care of their own health. The second we get away from these um, fantasies uh, and look at the real world, that the vast, vast majority of the, the human population right now are in no conditions to even begin to take control of their own health. And, and to be honest, the very small segment of the population that can are not my audience. <laughs> you know, I, I think uh, that very small privileged population, uh, to the degree that they are willing to really look at the world around them, they're going to have to realize that soon even what seems possible to them now um, is not the case. But realistically, that picture of the individual who can completely care for their health in this way, who can do all the research, who can make sure that their food is coming from a reliable source, etc. Under today's conditions, that picture um, always has to have slaves somewhere off stage. Uh, it's not actually realistic that there are the material conditions exist and where does the uh where do your sewing pins come from where do your tools come from right i mean uh, this is something that i think uh, molly klein has actually made uh, a point of in numerous cases that this kind of petty bourgeois fantasy uh of the you know growing your own food as a response now at the same time you know there are useful um survival tactics as it were, that we can draw from this discourse. And there's useful things from, from being in, in conversation with people who are um, trying to work through these problems, not maliciously often, but within the ideological blinkers that have been provided from to them by the society that they're in. And so there are a lot of genuine people, even working class people who have been heavily indoctrinated by these individualist capitalist fantasies who think, okay, you know, how do I solve this problem? And the only... Um, logic that even seems available to them based on their the ideological conditioning and propaganda are these go-it-alone fantasies. But of course, realistically, I think um, the second one really cont contemplates all the things that we know are the real serious drivers of poor health and the conditions that would possibly allow us to overcome them. It has to be a collective political struggle. Um, and it has to be, that's the only way to get anywhere near Right, the conditions where we could be uh, dealing with these issues. I, I know you, you've you've brushed on it, Dom. I, I think it's to to acknowledge the, the the arm or the force of the pharmaceuticals industry's uh, investment on manipulating the population by buying their products, which you mentioned here in your in your piece, and the importance of persuading people through advertisements as they have done like in Mexico, in Ireland, 
in some of the most poorest areas of the world and global, like like um, Nestle has done uh, with a PepsiCo in Mexico, my country, where they are trying to do this anti-hunger campaign uh, and trying to give people formulas, baby formulas, in order to uh, uh, to 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 cure, to take care of this this hunger issue that's happening in other countries, and instead of really promoting something as free and more natural and as better as it is for babies, right? Like the, just to be breastfed. And so uh, I, I think if anyone remembers, like in the seventies, there was a scandal that w- it happened with Nestle and the baby formula and how there was a boycott for it. And because they were, they were using, I have it here. They were using uh, ways to promote this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, uh, the baby formula through, uh, can't find it. I'll just remember here that they were trying to um, uh, manipulate people and promote it as much as possible through giving uh, free samples, giving them as gifts, and trying to uh, give false information about it in order for it to be used and and, and market it for the capitalist gain. So I appreciate you mentioning it. I don't know if you want to say anything more about this, how much is spent on on just the manipulation of, of facts and also in relationship to what we've seen currently with the COVID vaccinations. I mean, I don't know anyone that could really talk about COVID and their stance of maybe being a doubter, maybe not a denier of anything, but just being, oh, I'm not too sure, without anyone harping on you. People, regular people, not doctors, because everyone was so brainwashed into buying into it and that you couldn't, you, you couldn't talk about something alternative without being, you know, pushed by your regular grandmother or pushed by your regular neighbor or et cetera. It was so pervasive. Yeah, I think it, it is. I mean, I don't know. It's it's one of those shocking uh, areas of, of profound cognitive dissonance because everyone knows this, even as something as mainstream as you know, John Oliver covered a few years ago, the fact that uh, these... Uh, most of these pharmaceutical companies spend more on research, uh, sorry, more on advertising than they do on research and development. And even that is uh, when you look into the terms, how much of this research and development should properly be understood as um, itself a form of marketing propaganda is, is another issue that I try to point to a bit in the essay. Um, and as well, that people don't think critically about even what that marketing budget really means, both in the sense of the tremendous influence uh, that I think I also point out in the paper that in 2018, I think was when I looked at the study, um, all the major advertisers uh, for, so the the largest advertiser for all the major um, cable news channels were selling some kind of medical product. Uh, And that means that they have a tremendous influence on what those, uh, what those, news reports will say or not say, how they will frame things. So there are all these forms of uh, both explicit and implicit bias. Uh, But there's also, your point just reminded me of another thing that Corbett actually reported on that was, um, I think, phenomenally revealing. A lot of people on the left are familiar with the, um, this, initiative to try and gin up war uh, support and that did succeed in getting support for the the first gulf war they had this young woman come and claim that the iraqi uh, soldiers came and hurled out some 
completely unbelievable amount of uh, premature babies out of incubators. Uh, there's a great speech by Michael Parenti where he he kind of says, you know, what do, do they think Iraq, uh, Kuwait specialized in having premature babies? They even believe that they would have this many, um, you know, collected there. But this story really did work. And that story was managed and planted by a PR company called Hill and Noten. Yeah, that same PR company was contracted by the WHO to manage their COVID-19 public messaging uh, at the start of the the so-called pandemic. So in in these instances, it's directly there. The information is available. The connections are clear. And it is just the tremendous weight of kind of, I think, indoctrination and ideology that somehow allows for them not to be taken up and integrated. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I was just thinking about, um, yeah, like Eduardo bringing up the propaganda campaign as just such a massive arm of this. But I was even thinking, like, um, I loved the the Federici quote that you included. I'm like a huge, huge Federici person. She's her work has just been um, super impactful in terms of my understanding of Marxism and all kinds of stuff. But um, I was just thinking about the way that propaganda, like even prior to all of the technology and the prof- the sort of um, like male medical professional sort of rising to, you know, the, the highest status. Um, I was just thinking about the way that like the witch trials are such a great kind of embodiment of the propaganda like underpinnings this idea that even before all of that that shit like they were able to brand right like this idea of the whether it was like the midwife or the natural healer or like people who were practicing mostly women who were practicing medicine or like science like real science right um we're talking like as early as like 14th, 15th, 16th century, like really robust understandings of anatomy and plant medicine, right? And and um, like truly true medical, well, not medical care, but healthcare. Um, and the way that that propaganda campaign was so successful, such that like at a certain point, like they didn't need to kill every individual, like quote unquote, witch who was, threatening to this upcoming industry they already had like the propaganda had already done that work for them right and it it works like all the way through to present day where now like yeah if you make tinctures in your kitchen like you're you're automatically marginalized as like oh you're you're not serious you're whatever hippie witch pick your pick your pejorative um, but I was just thinking about like, I think a lot of times we think of the propaganda as like part of this like modern, um, you know, oh, it's the advertisements and, you know, selling pills. Right. But I think it really like it really precedes all of that, like industrial revolution, enlightenment era. Yeah. And I think that just highlights, again, just how much this is a question of power and class. Uh, and how that's lost. But in that instance, that vast body of incredibly effective, useful medical knowledge, 
right, from the position of the ruling class who had this problem of how to force through enclosure and how to break the back of peasant resistance. And one of the most effective ways of doing that uh, was uh, offering some uh, relatively preferential position to men within the uh, enclosed the society subject to enclosure. And you had this problem that this uh, incredibly useful and effective body of knowledge was in the hands of women and made them more powerful, gave them control over their own reproduction, uh, and so made it harder to dominate them. And so that that whole body of knowledge was broken and destroyed uh, and replaced with much worse medical knowledge, but medical knowledge that was more conducive to the political necessities and aims of the ruling class. Yeah, totally. And I think like, just back to your earlier point of like, it initially was more about, I mean, and still is more about like business and industry than it ever was based on like science, like real health. Um, I mean, they were able to sort of invent whether it was like surgical tools or um, like the licensing campaign, right. To where like suddenly if you didn't have a license, you know, you were criminalized if you were practicing medicine. Um, so I very much agree with the notion of seeing more deeply this notion of propaganda and to think of it as just as commercialism or advertisement, or even just to think of it as a modern concept, as opposed to something that has existed, that a, a, we've, we've existed in class divided society where a minority of people rule and they have always used ideas to control the population. And they're definitely doing it now and they did it then. But I want to, I want to add another layer that you did in the reading that that you introduced when Silvia Federici talks about this process of separation of 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 the spirit from the body um, that she talks about in that quote. Because I again, what's so useful for me about it is we talk about transhumanism and transhumanism is kind of separating spirit from body, but this this approach has been very important for capitalism of separating body and soul if you will um even if body and spirit mental labor and manual labor kind of kind of separations alienation has been central to how capitalism has worked at, to control and i i do want to extend that to this quote that you cited from Silvia federici she talks about it as mechanical philosophy um she goes in mechanical philosophy we perceive a new bourgeois spirit that calculates classifies makes distinction and degrades the body only to rationalize its uh, faculties, aiming not just as at intensity, aiming not just at intensifying its subjugation, but at maximizing social utility. Um, and she goes on further, to pose the body as mechanical matter, void of any intrinsic tele tele teleology, was to make intelligible the possibility of subordinating it to a work process that increasingly relied on uniform, and predictable forms of behavior. Once its devices were constructed and it was itself reduced to a tool, the body could be opened to an to an invite uh, manipulation of its power and possibility. Um, the, the quote goes on further, but I just feel like that's like even that that is like a layer in which we're approaching that gets to issues of germ theory, the notion of treating um, sickness versus treating sick, and that also I does do think gets us to the modern hospital system that developed. Um, and I think we are not invited to think that way about our society. And I think that quote, and you pose it, putting that quote in your reading, really just opened my eyes to just how deep, if you will, the propaganda goes in. It, like, 
it gets into that just the way we even see the world at all. Yeah, yeah, I think, and it, it um, I think it's indicative of also the nature of the relationship to the ruling class to um, ideological production more generally. You know, I mean, the ruling class uh, produces nothing really even ideas in some sense yeah that they exploit the ideas that are freely and spontaneously generated by the whole human community under certain conditions and i think in those you know that's why these ideas are sites of struggle and i think it's just fascinating to think about the fact without going down at a tangent but you know, already uh, while this um, ideological trend was happening there was the reactionary mystifying responses to it from the kind of right, I think we could say, going back to one of the points we discussed last time about the continuity or meaningfulness of, of thinking about a left category. But I think if you, you know, uh, think of the poetry of William Blake in particular as this um, tremendous, what I think is self-evidently left-wing response to this process of the mechanization and the uh, the tearing away the spirit from the body, you know, you know, as much as a kind of prophetic character and, and Blake mystifies in his own way, obviously self-consciously, uh, we can recognize that there is more in what is classed as religion or, you know, the obscure than simply this materialist mechanism. Uh, and there's a, a bad tendency, I think, I suppose, amongst our, our comrades to, again, just simply ident to identify with the crudest mechanism by positioning it against um, that the only binary here is between a mechanism or a organic holism uh, rather than something more dialectical uh, that would be more appropriate to the, um, the question. Um, I was, yes, I, I guess we're, we're in this discussion, this part of the discussion is about medical society, how it has been rearranged by some would say thanks to the healthcare system and then its technological and scientific advances. Uh, uh, you argue that this is obviously like here, this is what the consequences of, of that but is, but some would say that there are positive consequences such as uh, eradicating polio or um, making sure that people would have better uh, hygienic uh, um, habits and uh, preventative measures to diseases and, germs and sicknesses. These are things that people clearly state out that they would um, uh, show that just even measures like these at a grand scale in society, such as in England, uh, there were a lot of people didn't have running uh, toilets, right? There wasn't a, a solar system. So people used to just litter out or defecated out onto the streets. I remember being in London and that was one of the things that I, I read about even in Edinburgh. So these are things that uh, when when doctors would go into poor neighborhoods or what would now be considered, I guess, ghettos or areas where they were prevalent, these uh, unsanitary practices, then uh, people wondered why they would get sick. But it wasn't until doctors would find understandings that, oh, my goodness, we're, people are not keeping distance away from, for example, fecal matter or they're not uh, or they're not. Um, uh, taking on, uh, they're they're not uh, taking care of, like, or not doing campaigns in order to take care of the sick with, uh, with uh, medicines that were benefiting the the poor. What would you say then, uh, to to those advances and to 
those reasons why we needed to we need to have this uh, a healthcare system that maintains a healthy society. Does that make sense? I don't know if I posed my question. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think um, again, it's kind of helpful almost to reiterate that my position is as a Marxist, as a leftist, pro enlightenment uh, and pro science. I think and and pro medical care that is. Uh, properly conducted and uh, well grounded. I, I think the the problem here, and even I mean, with those positions, we have to unpack. And you know, it is to some degree the the fault of um, those that fight with us on the other side of the more kind of flippant or overgeneralizing critiques of medical care more broadly or science more broadly uh, that make it understandable that people um, think we're throwing out the the baby with the bathwater uh, as it were here but of course um the class struggle pervades the society right and one of the ways in which capitalism constituted itself was by providing lots of useful commodities and products and things uh, and uh, you know, capitalism emerged out of a historical conjuncture where there was a group of people who could gain power via exploiting labor and providing useful commodities Right? And not by any other way, right? The the people who became capitalism and foisted capitalism on the earth would have rather have been aristocrats, but that wasn't an option. Huh? And so they, they gained power and um, constituted themselves as a class through this avenue, which generated capitalism, which was a, a, also a tremendous engine of productivity uh, and also did massively spur the emergence of science. So uh, I wouldn't at all uncritically uh, or throw out all of the uh, wonderful benefits, right, that uh, have been extracted or made possible by capitalist relations. I don't think we have to negate those. Uh, and the same goes even for uh, medical science, right? There are these, I think, paradoxes or constraints. Uh, as we noted, of course, uh, the ruling class was never interested in the maximal health of their workers, but they were interested in a certain level of health, right? Certainly enough, and even um, a lot of tropical medicine, right, emerged out of the demands for um, both making sure that your soldiers, mercenaries, overseers could survive, right, and to exploit the labor. So there are always these um, countervailing tendencies, and also there are the demands of the population. So there are things, there are certainly, I think I want to make absolutely clear in case that's not from the, the article, tremendous gains that have been produced by modern medical science. Uh, but an awful lot of those, you know, to the degree that medical science has produced gains, it has been um, in response to the demands or the exertions of the, the masses, generally speaking. Uh, and also, Insofar as we've had broader, I think, beneficial responses to public health demands, that has also been a response to uh, popular power. And one of the, the complicated things that I try to accommodate in the essay, um, that again, I think is hard to make on its own case, and it's useful to read my prior essay, um, not to demand <laughs> endless footnotes or, or whatever to my arguments, uh, but that, for instance, social democracy. Uh, in the West, which I take as something that was possible principally because of the uh, deeper successes or more profound successes of the working class in establishing 
uh, socialist and also progressive anti-colonialist states that forced that compromise with the domestic working classes did create all these conditions in which you had an empowered, educated population who could demand uh, and and had the the resources right to to some degree scrutinize uh, the healthcare that was provided for them. So I think our assessment of these things has to be much more um, fine, detailed, and, and dialectical to to see that all these things are are a site of struggle. Now, on the same time, though, wherever possible, right the uh, the hegemonic ideological institutions of the ruling class are always going to favor, perpetuate, and select those presentations of the reality um, which militate against our empowerment uh, as workers, right, or as the masses in generally. So, one of the core arguments of this whole essay is that the labor struggle against capitalism, which took the form domestically of social democracy and the trade union struggle and in other places um, and these can't be separated right uh, the, the struggle for socialism etc did win real games right that there was a point of uh, the establishment of capitalism produced these conditions that was itself complicated that tore people from a lot of natural conditions produced all sorts of circumstances in which there were new or different forms of ill health uh, piecing together even the a comprehensive picture of health over the course of these different phases is very complicated, I think, and not at all a simplistic thing to do. Uh, but particularly, right, I think we can say that the massive reduction in illness from these major, especially infectious diseases, whether we agree that all of them are infectious or not, or that infectious is the best way to understand them, right, both bacterial and virological, uh, there is this massive reduction over the um, over the period that is roughly consonant with the progressive um, establishment of the welfare state and the increasing living standards of workers in the places where these diseases go away. Uh, and my argument is that um, capitalism or capitalist institutions have tended to favor the inter interpretation of that phenomenon, which views it as a gift from ruling class science. Uh, and so in particular, this idea that it is vaccines or um, pharmaceuticals that produce these gains in, in health, when really there is very compelling evidence, as is presented in particular in part three of this essay, uh, that a huge portion of those gains, at minimum, can be accounted for much more directly by the better living standards. And above all, I mean, one of the, the major things is simple increase in nutrition. Uh, it's a great point that uh, Levantin makes in biology as ideology, referring to studies in Brazil where um, the life expectancy uh, of infants goes up and down with the minimum wage. Uh, often it is that direct, that if people can adequately feed themselves and their children, uh, they have better health. Uh, if they can provide not to eat toxic substances uh, that are substitutes for adequate food, Right, then they have better health. Um, there are other aspects of health, absolutely, uh, and we can't throw them out. But I think the the major argument of this essay is that the much more important determinants, which if they were clearly and lucidly understood, would show the the absolute decisive importance of politics and the class struggle, are constantly obscured in favor of 
um, representations of the reality, uh, which in try to invert it or place it uh, in a way more conducive to the interest of the, uh, the rulers. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's kind of tells you all you need to know, right? That like, like, why does the WHO and the Gates Foundation and I mean, the United States government push for vaccines and pharma over prioritizing, you know, if we're looking at like international scale, increased sanitation, eradication of malnutrition, eradication of poverty, really, in wherever, I mean, Africa or like Flint, Michigan or San Francisco, right? Like clean water and healthy food would go a lot further based on science, but it's not in their class interest to do that. Yeah, and if I could just note, just because it's something that I, I plan to get into in part four, but I haven't spoken of in these earlier essays as much, but Jacob Levitch in particular has done incredible research on uh, how the Gates Foundation in particular systematically turns uh, public health in third world countries away from the straightforward popular democratic means, right? Um, clean water, empowerment of the population, control over their own food supplies to uh, gutting these public budgets that are anywhere near popular control and turning, uh, you know, ripping whatever blood can be taken from that stone of these third world health budgets into useless pharmaceuticals, often experimental pharmaceuticals forced on the populations. Um, and even if you believed in their claims, you'd still have to, to the only way to interpret that approach is that um, at best, they want circumstances in which the working class can live in squalor with um, essentially inadequate, uh, if you can even call it food, and still manage to be healthy enough to work. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the other, I don't know if it was in part two or part three where you showed that graph. Was it measles or tuberculosis? Uh, I think it is measles, but... Uh, Levantin also refers to tuberculosis yeah. as having jumped up. Where you basically show that graph that really shows that the the likelihood of, of young people, I think people below the age of 15, dying from measles goes down and down and down and down and down. And then when it gets to the very bottom, the virus that causes measles is discovered. That's not even the point at which the, the vaccine, so-called vaccine, which eliminates it, which is supposed to be, which is accredited for eliminating measles is that that the the so-called virus that supposedly created this problem is discovered that at the time the thing is eliminated and and yet it's attributed the, the solution to this problem is attributed to ruling class miracle procedures um that in and of themselves isn't actually even made by the ruling class but you know but that the, they they claim the the scientific germ theory that produced that that result or that that diagnosed the problem and then we pr produce this thing called a vaccine that then gives us a solution when the thing has actually already been solved and to and then to say so it does two things it it it, it like you said it 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 credits the the rulers with the solution and then simultaneously obscures the actual actions of workers to improve their living conditions through struggle i mean you can draw a through line from them to the witches who were so-called witches, women who had their own solutions for their health, 
to say, no, you, you have nothing to do with that solution. And, and that's the same way, again, I pe- people, I really do believe that every, the best way to understand how our medical industry has operated is just look at what has happened at COVID this whole time. Anyone who put forward vitamin D or any sort of idea for how to solve this was literally criminalized. Like people, there was a website. I remember that a time when websites that were pushing for vitamin D solutions to the, to the problems people were experiencing health problems that people were experiencing that were called COVID. Um, when vitamin D was put up, those websites were being shut down and doctors who prescribed that were, who uh, were talked about that were fined, or at least were going to be threatened with a fine. Um, and that's just one area. Like, and that's just vitamin D, you know, um, there are probably, I, I know there are other things people were talking about doing. And in all cases, that was all pushed aside, let alone the idea that your body itself may have a response that would be able to solve it. Um, you know, which, you know, no, the, the vaccine has to come in. I mean, we know there are reasons for that. We can talk about QR codes in the digital world and the fourth industrial revolution, but that, 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 that experience was, was not, that was not just some sort of exaggerated experience. That was an exposure of what we have been living in. I was born into that and it existed well before me. And it's been, it's been around for quite some time. That sort of way our medical industry has um, separated our, our own accomplishments from from reality and then attributed all those accomplishments to themselves. Yeah, and, and I would just add, um, especially earlier on in the kind of earlier iteration, um, as I, I kind of present in the essay, also very useful for obscuring real causes of harms uh, to make people not appreciate the significance of malnutrition. And I think in particular, make people not appreciate the importance of toxic poisoning uh, exposure to all sorts of pollutants um, concern about has now become somehow like a right-wing fringe issue to to think that there are toxins in our environment ludicrously uh, um, I think in particular with polio the the tremendous evidence that this was something that had much more to do with uh, various pesticides uh, exposure to these toxic things that then in the case of polio was quite consciously, I think there's tremendous evidence, consciously covered up with the rollout of a vaccine and a coordinated program to, um, along with Silent Spring, to do this kind of controlled um, hangout about the dangers that came from um, DDT uh, in particular. Uh, And I think um, one of the significant things though that has occurred is that for a long time, this picture of health has been a useful one for the capitalists to also wash their hands of harms uh, and to say that um, it's these circulating invaders, right? Um, whereas the really significant shift that began with AIDS and really culminated with uh, COVID-19 has been the ruling class has actually transferred its position within this hall of mirrors that it's constructed around health. And whereas they previously said um, society is not responsible that uh, for these dangers to health that come from these, uh, you know, circulating little viral mercenaries that are floating around. Now, even more sinisterly, they have taken on for themselves the responsibility that they say, oh, we do have the, the, 
the right and the obligation. Uh, it's just like R2P, the right to protect this uh, development in international law, the expression of ultimate uh, you know, kind of dictatorial posture towards uh, undoing the, the previous uh, consensus about national sovereignty. So too with human bodies, uh, that with this COVID-19 approach to health, uh, the ruling class insists that they are responsible now for the viruses circulating in our body and can do whatever they need to uh, as they present to control that uh, circulation. And can I add one more modern story that just completely highlights this dynamic you're talking about? Um, this was something I actually posted on um, Facebook and sent to my, you know, Brandy, she's in Hawaii right now, and my folks, and my brother. It's an article by Yahoo whose title is, um, let's see, what's the title? Since COVID, more young people are dying of heart attacks. Here's what we know. And then if you go down to the meat of the article, since the COVID-19 pandemic began, heart attack deaths across all age groups have become more common in the United States. According to a September 22 study by Cedars sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, and they just absolutely no mention of the vaccine. They even go as far as saying heart attacks are connected to, my, to myocarditis in the article. No mention of, of the vaccines, no or no mention of these shots, these mRNA shots. And they're just going on and being like, well, it looks like COVID might have just, looks like some long-term effect of COVID seems to be uh, all these young people, a growing risk of heart attacks. Go figure. I mean, it literally, you're, I'm watching a, re, a return of all the history you're describing about all these things, like literally in front of my face. Yeah. And it, I think too, like it, that article, for example, is shocking to us and just like the blatancy of whatever the puppet show. Right. But to the, a lot of people, it's not right. And I think, yeah, the, this series definitely highlights like some of the material ways in which like, how can people be expected to see through this propaganda given what they're fed, like literally from birth. Like I, we had a great little moment in one of my classes the other week, cause we were actually, we just read um, Silent Spring um, in my um, eco-feminist lit class. And we were watching some of the old footage of like the, it was literally like, you know, children just being hosed down with DDT under the assumption that this was going to protect them from polio. And my students, they were like, even though they had read the book, I think the images of it were just so shocking to them that they were like, oh, my God, like, I can't I can't believe that people believed this. And then one of, one of them sort of piped up and said, like, oh, like, kind of makes me wonder, like, what we're going to be saying about this era, like what practices are going to be viewed in that way that we're all participating in. I was like, yeah. And, and I want to add one complication because I had the same response that I sent this to my mom and my brother and uh, Brandy and Heather, my sister-in-law with that same sense of despair of like, Oh my God. And my mom pointed out, and you can look at this article and maybe I'll post it um, that there's 4,800 comments. And to a person, everyone's being like, what the hell are you talking about? And the top comment on the thing is basically a person who said, not only did I not get nailed with COVID and I'm never going to get near that shot, but they basically talk about, let me see if I can find it. 
I don't have anything against being test against tested proven vaccines, but when I served and they were in the army, I was administered the ex experimental anthrax vaccine and years later ended up with cancer and which was linked directly to the experimental anthrax vaccine. So like, I don't even know what to make of that to like this massive outpouring of letters of people going like, fuck you, Tom, I'd like you to kind of speak to both of these things. Cause I have despair about it and I don't know what to yet to make about also the kind of these responses that are in the letters and it's overwhelming in some ways. Yeah, I think this is um, yeah, a really important point because I think, um, you know, obviously the case <laughs> with the ruling class, to use a very simplistic analogy, uh, but that often comes to my mind, is they're extremely small, right? And uh, there's a hell of a lot more of us than the people who want to rule us. And so they can never um, force their will directly. Uh, the only way that they can actually achieve, especially and even more so with how concentrated the current ruling class is, is by using the forces that we generate against them. Uh, I mean, the ruling class is always using jujitsu, right? They can't, they can't directly carry for their interest. And so um, almost always in the most effective programs of the ruling class, we see inverted expressions uh, of our own power or our own desire or our own interest, just as the way that uh, Marx so eloquently said that religion right, was this um, inversion of man's real creative powers turned into something which stood over him and, and dominated him. Uh, uh, and so we talked about that to some degree with theology, but I also think it's significant with one of the most concerning things that we have to be preoccupied in our specific position and conjuncture is the controlled opposition that the ruling class installs in between all of us that are potentially or actively resisting and those other people who are potentially and actively resisting. Um, and so even, you know, we were talking before about health and I was thinking of this um, Malhotra character who has been recently circulated as the um, you know, reasonable, glossy face uh, of opposition. And this is a guy who has for a long time been criticizing statins and a lot of the, you know, garbage uh, science around heart disease with the response that the we need to tax sugar and fatty foods and, and all these things and, you know, put more carceral or shackles around uh, these things to punish uh, working people who have no option. Uh, or we think of I mean, these people like um, Malone, all these fraudulent characters that are put uh, at the top of the opposition. And one of the major things that these people tend to drive is this idea of the sheeple. Uh, this is one of the most prevalent. I think you can always kind of identify either a controlled opposition or someone who has been gold absolutely by them. Uh, by this idea that the the problem is, you know, that the majority are stupid sheeple that fell for all this and that it's just we, this clever little few. The vast, vast majority of the global population has had nothing to do <laughs> with this program. Right? Most of humanity uh, has put tremendous opposition to these vaccines. The whole point of all these uh, legal quasi-legal mechanisms that they tried to come to force these vaccines uh, and these measures upon people necessarily imply, right? They would have liked to do it by um, less aggressive means, but it was because the population resisted. Uh, people are tremendously skeptical 
uh, I think you talk to the, the vast majority of people about why the, the concessions they've made to this, and it's some combination, even there, uh, of their goodwill being misdirected uh, and by the terror uh, that was by force imposed. But the this whole idea that we're amidst these stupid sheeple it has nothing to do with the real world in which we live uh, and is constantly hammered into us precisely by those people who would like to um, make sure that that majority, that vast majority, uh, does not actually carry forth its will. Uh, so, Tom, as we're wrapping up here, there are areas in this uh, piece of yours that uh, uh, I I think that we should uh, just conclude with. Can you just maybe mention the um, a, a piece of it that you would like to further discuss before we wrap up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think just uh, one of the kind of linchpin arguments uh, of the essay, and I think one of the most important, is stepping back really at a very structural level and looking at the epistemic conditions that we're in, in terms of uh, evaluating the medical and scientific information that's produced and um, assessing how we should what our default or a priori approach to that uh, should be. And one of the uh, significant arguments that I rely on the essay comes in particular from this this text, Medical Nihilism by Jacob Steganga, uh, which is a very formal kind of uh, academic philosophy work uh, and is not at all comes to the same conclusions as myself. He's very reformist, uh, I think very bourgeois perspective. But he ne nonetheless makes a really compelling argument that uh, essentially when you step back and you assess this whole edifice and you look at the innumerable sources of bias that are flowing into the, the ultimate results that come. So uh, when we start from the fact that the, uh, the vast majority of research that's undertaken in our society right, is happening either directly by um, the institutions that seek to profit from some product that comes as a result of it. Uh, and, th and that's the vast majority directly by the uh, profit-seeking corporations, overwhelmingly again, criminal profit-seeking corporations, uh, which seek to produce something and whose only incentive is getting something on the market that people will buy. Yeah, and their disincentives are being regulated Right or being sued uh, against these products, and we assess how likely, how effective are the mechanisms for imposing those disincentives. Uh, when we consider the fact that the other research research being conducted is being conducted in either public institutions um, or research universities, which are themselves so intimately interlinked with those private corporations that they really can't be treated as independent at all anymore yeah and so this is is one of the the pillars of the argument that this is where the the information the research is being produced then we consider the fact that the means in which the research is being done right we have the supposed hierarchy from uh observational studies at the bottom all the way up to randomized control tiles to meta-analyses. But Stakenga makes a tremendously compelling argument, I think, that on every level, there is tremendous malleability, right? Both 
for unconscious bias, right? So even under conditions where we assume goodwill for all participants, but the simple natural forces of um, confirmation bias and uh, you know implicit incentives, so people want to find a certain result, um, are sufficient to induce massive skew into the system. Uh, and and he goes through, I think, quite meticulously showing that these are just as much the case at the level of uh, randomized control trials, uh, sorry, at, at the meta-analysis. Uh, and one of the really effective arguments he makes in favor of that is that uh, an important aspect of meta-analysis are tools for evaluating studies lower on the hierarchy. Uh, but he shows that meta-analyses of those qualitative assessment tools, so the tools that exist for assessing lower on the hierarchy studies, uh, have very little evidence of consistency. So different people applying the same quality assessment uh, mechanisms come up with different results. And across the difference, so there's a number of different quality assessment mechanisms, and they tend to produce widely different results when you put the studies through them. So uh, the the hierarchy is not actually genuine. So the things at the top of the hierarchy are not necessarily better. Uh, and, and every level, there's lots of areas for skew, and the people engaged in it are massively inclined towards skewing it, right? So uh, these factors are at play. Then you consider the fact that the the grand kind of golden linchpin from the perspective of MAME supporters and the legitimate uh, ideology is that the thing that is checking this all, if it's not the regulatory institutions or the um, you know beautiful goodwill of the scientists involved, uh, who have all these massive financial incentives is the peer review system. But every serious analysis of the peer review system shows that it's profound, profoundly flawed. Uh, and there's actually remarkable evidence cited in the paper. There's even more uh, in Stiganga and as well in um, Virus Mania also has a lot of this information about people involved at the highest levels uh, of some of the most um, esteemed journals, right? high-level editors commenting about how useless, how inadequate the mechanisms of peer review are. And then there are objective studies, the most famous, of course, uh, John Ioannidis's, I think it was 2005 study, that most published research findings are false, yeah? uh, that they cannot be re reproduced. And uh, something that ties back to what we discussed in the prior um, uh, program, was that with the increasing technical complexity of the scientific enterprise, even if you wanted to reproduce these studies, it becomes difficult. Uh, and one of the, the uh, really significant factors is that there's a huge, massive price barrier uh, that most of the significant um, science Right? And the, the basis of these studies is occurring under conditions in which there has to be a truly unfathomable prior investment. Right, So there's no way that either independent organizations or even research institutions on the budget of third world countries or even, you know, um, middle income countries could possibly have the means to be producing the circumstances to even check this work, even if they wanted to. Uh, so um, there's a factor there that I think is often underappreciated that um, the 
sheer expensiveness of the technology is a useful way on a very crude level of excluding any uh, reproduction or verification uh, of the uh, science that's going on. Um, meanwhile, the peer review is occurring by the peers, right, are people who are going through these tightly controlled and disciplined institutions. And I think one of the remarkable uh, facts I cited in the paper, this one was from Virus Mania. I can't remember if it was uh, the British Medical Journal, BMJ, or New England Journal of Medicine. One of them had to change their policies that people making more than 10,000 uh, in the concerned field could not be peer reviewed because there was no one to be found who was making less than 10,000. Right? And, um, and we do have studies showing that uh, financial interest do affect the outcome of uh, regulatory reviews. Right? We assume the same must be the case of peer reviews, and yet that is not being used as a barrier to participation in the peer review process. So throughout this whole mechanism, yeah, we have these tremendous incentives and tendencies towards bias. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I think perhaps the most significant fact that Stegenga highlights is that the most um, significant fact about research today is that the vast majority of it is not published. Yeah. And so the research that we see is an exceedingly small uh, fragment of the real research done. And every factor that plays into what is the part of that fragment and what isn't is that the fragment we see is massively disproportionately skewed to be the fragment which shows positive effect for uh, pharmaceutical products or medical inventions more generally, and which doesn't show negative effects. And most of the research which shows either of those things simply isn't published. Um, um, and though there are reformist effects to modulate this, and there have been some improvements in some ways, on the whole, uh, the apparatus is clearly so massively skewed in favor of this that um, he makes a very compelling argument that our confidence a priori must be extremely low in the outcomes, um, the, the information produced by this uh, edifice. Just, I mean, I think that's incredibly relevant, incredibly Im important how much um, you've emphasized uh, the Genga's uh, conclusion of this, because uh, as you noted in your piece, there's like most of the people in the FDA and all the people who are regulatory and all the hierarchy of, met of, of, of filtering through an approval piece has a conflict of interest, uh, you've, you've, you've stated. And, uh, and everyone is going to have some bias, as you mentioned as well. I mean, we are still using to this day, uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, by Reveal News, uh, to this day, we're still using um, uh, commonly used calculators that are leading black and Latina women to uh, have uh, C-sections more than white women. And this is because of the legacy of J. Marion Sims, the father of modern gynecology who experimented on enslaved women in the 1840s. And this calculator today is still being used. and Note, it's notable as an institutional racism uh, where most black women are getting C-sections because of this <laughs> mode of, of, of measurement. So the, the instruments, the measurements, the, 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 the legacy from the past, the conflicts of interests, the biases that we have, uh, whether economic or racist, uh, these are uh, embedded 
into this complex, into this uh, big pharma or, or um, the medical complex, right? So it's, it's as you've noted here, prevailing and pervasive. It's in in every um, structural, uh, in, in 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 the in our institution of what makes up uh, the medical industrial complex. So it's it's it's. Thank you. Appreciate that you bringing that up. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I don't know how anyone could naively just assume that everything is for our own good or it's in our good. And as you also brought up about uh, COVID, uh, what was highlighted wasn't uh, how 90%, you didn't state this, but you talked about the, 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 the positive effects of, 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 of the vaccine instead of the negative effects. And what also wasn't brought up during this three-year era was as them how 90% of the people of the population were recovering from COVID before the before the jabs and how uh, less than uh, um, 2% of uh, here in the USA were, uh, were, were being affected gravely, but everyone else was being recovered. But it was just that small number that was being highlighted and that was being emphasized and that was being used to, to, to target for, um, um, to to move the masses to 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 uh, to their narrative, the glo this global narrative on COVID. Tom, do you want to respond to that? Because I was going to actually add some of my own experiences in science that reflected some of the stuff you're talking about. But I want to see if you want to respond to Eduardo's what Eduardo's saying. Yeah, I, I would. I'd be very interested to hear that. I would just uh, um, make the small point that I think, interestingly, again, the COVID experience has helped at least those of us who are somewhat skeptical understand these deeper phenomenon in understanding uh, what is the kind of, I think, even statistics 101 phenomenon that a lot of the general population doesn't understand about uh, something like testing, where even if you have an extremely good test, if you're, you know, with a high level of accuracy, if you are applying it in a population in which the disease is uh, not very prevalent or non-existent, um, then even a highly accurate test, most of the positives will be false positives. Uh, and I think that's a helpful analogy for people to understand that people will read a scientific study that's in a peer-reviewed journal that will be even very well done, right? So well-executed, randomized controlled trial, you imagine all the conditions uh, are such as to produce good results that you should trust. Um, and if you treated that, um, that publication in isolation, uh, you would naively think that that's good information. But once you understand that that ostensibly positive result from a good trial is one of thousands of unpublished comparable experiments, uh, then you realize that in the same way that you could run a, a good test over and over and still get a false positive, you can do a well-designed experiment over and over until you get the result that you want. And there is a huge bias. Uh, even on a, a cynical but not completely malicious level that is often underappreciated, that pharmaceutical, and this is one of the deeper rationalities of, of capitalist science or science done for intelligent purposes more generally, that uh, if a pharmaceutical company is investigating a product and they find a harm or they find an inefficacy, even if they don't want to sell that product themselves, they have a bias not to publish it because they have a financial incentive in their competitor wasting resources on the same useless experiment. Uh, so what is a, a 
structural capitalist inefficiency on a broad scale under these conditions translates into a massive bias towards inaccurate positive results. Because if you imagine a scenario in which, you know, over the these many different arms of these pharmaceutical companies, which maybe are not even interacting with each other, this same product uh, goes through good experiments, let's even assume good experiments, a thousand times. And among one of those arms, they find the positive results that they want and are sufficient to get it onto market. All those other arms and all those different pharmaceutical companies or branches thereof didn't publish it because they were hoping that the other, uh, you know, uh, 98,000 competitors wasted those resources. Uh, but that amounts again to this huge pool that's black, that's unseen to us. Uh, and that means that what we see cannot be assessed as such. Right? Um, but Andy, I'm really interested to hear uh, your broader extrapolations. What happened at Johns Hopkins, Andy? <laughs> well, this actually starts starts really in some ways with um, uh, my post. And this isn't really broader, but more like a specific example of how I see this. And it's probably just, I'm really, all I'm repeating is why I never read, I read the, I read part of United Anitis's article on why most um, things are false, like that most publications are false, um, but I didn't get fully through it. Um, now I want to go back and reread the whole thing. Um, but it really just highlights in, a, in an area where I don't actually, I did not, I did not feel like directly the the the, um, the financial incentive to to essentially do a kind of fraud. I want to say how this fraud played out in publications that I was part of. It was work done at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute in St. Louis after my after my after I got my grad, uh, undergrad degree and I was thinking about getting into the biomedical field. And we were doing a study on an EGF receptor, an epidermal growth factor, and um, trying to figure out signal transduction. Like, how does when the epidermal growth factor bind the receptor, with the theory is a signal gets transduced to get the cell to do something in response to the factor, this hormone that's being applied. Quiet, Kisma. Um, the and we had an early result that suggested that the untreated cell, the untreated epidermal growth factor was less phosphorylated than the treated growth factor. So we said, oh, phosphorylation, this phosphate group adding onto the receptor may be the base for signal transduction. So we had that preliminary result, it existed. And from there, it takes a year to two years to, to then publish evidence of that this phosphorylation gets a, it gets a, um, gets, um, that the, where we can produce a, a, a publish an, ar an article that says, oh yeah, we've shown that this phosphorylation is a result or is one of the ways the signal gets transduced. Well, I remember doing experiment after experiment after experiment, like at least maybe two experiments a week. Um, and they were like, wait, that didn't show this result. So let's maybe, what, what did we do wrong in that experiment? How do we adjust the experiment to, to get a different outcome? Like, you know, like we were just saying, we kept everything that didn't show the initial thesis we had, we thought there was an experimental problem. So what we were doing was fine tuning the experiment to then produce a, a layer, a, a series of results that you could piece together and say, here we, we publish it and here's our evidence. Because the publication process, publish or perish, was one where if you published, if you published experiments that were contrary to your result, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't see the light of day because clearly it was wrong. And it's like, wait a second. What what should have been happening is we actually should have been publishing almost every 
two months, really, basically publishing, this is our theory, but here's the countervailing things, but we thought that that experiment was wrong because we did this. You'd actually have to put all that stuff you're doing out there so people could evaluate it. It's like, oh, it's uh, what's that kind of open space science almost where you're, where you're basically showing everything, you know, and, and the pub, the publishing, the, the way you could publish was, you know, you had to make a credible case and a credible case meant you had to really curate your, this. You had to go through this curating process, your own self curating process, which is really an internal lying process to give, to give it to these peer review people. And secondly, I, I want to say that I remember being being the peer reviews people being talked about as, and it's something that you really wanted to get to. And and the people who were asked to be peer reviewers were people who themselves had proven that they could do credible science. And these are people who essentially build, build, built kind of feudal empires through this very same process. And anybody who was going to actually put something forward, that was a theory that might actually undermine the edifices under which these people had been built. There's no way they're going to be let in. Like so, any real science that might be alternative science would have no way of getting through that edifice of a peer review process built essentially of kings and queens who had built their empires out of this very same process. So you don't even have to put the financial and incentive into there, which clearly exists as well. But no one wants their own house of cards to fall by some clown who's got a, a different idea about how this whole thing goes that could just blow your whole thing down. You know, and then you, you, it goes down like the Twin Towers. Um, so, like, that's just the, some of the experiences I remember feeling and thinking. And, like, I remember doing all these different experiments going, like, I'm doing these experiments, but the results are going nowhere. They're, like, literally, they're hidden except for in our lab. And there did seem something wrong about that. But that was definitely something. And I think that happens lab after lab after lab. And no one publishes in three months. Everyone publishes after a year, year and a half, two, if you're lucky sometimes. So what's going on in that year? You're not just doing two experiments, three experiments. You're doing experiment after experiment after experiment and doing this curating process that produces this outcome that you can then sell to the reviewers as here is something that you can believe. Just to add on really briefly, I'm not in the sciences, but I have been through peer review um, publications in the humanities. And I mean, just to like, obviously it doesn't, directly affect the medical industrial complex in the same way as like actual scientific studies but the whole structure is exactly the same um and it's you know working in a public university it, it's kind of shocking to me like how like how hard they push the sort of peer review like in all disciplines you know in any standard english class it's like you better be writing a paper and you better check that little box on the database, right, of like peer review, because you have to include X number of peer reviewed studies, because that is the gold standard. And there's absolutely no analysis or even discussion usually, well, we do discuss in my class, but, you know, about like, what, what, did it, what does it even mean? It's just like, a oh, you know, you're, you give the kids a list, like, here's unreliable types of sources and then here's reliable and then here's peer review, which is at the top. Right. And so even, you even have these students who a lot of them are not going to necessarily be going, you know, staying in academia or like going into the medical field or, you know, anything like that, like they might end up having working class jobs, but they still, you know, they've had this idea of peer review as like this 
special, you know, thing at the top of the hierarchy, like just drilled into them. It's pretty wild. And yeah, I mean, my experience of like publishing in academia myself too, is just like, if you're, if you're sort of reinforcing the popular ideas of, of the, you know, academic culture at that moment, it's, it's basically a circle jerk, um, the whole process of peer review. And then if you're threatening that discourse, good luck getting published and good luck even staying in academia because it's the same thing, publish or perish. Especially at the beginning of your career, like kind of where I am right now, where it's like, there's so much pressure because like, if you don't keep publishing, you're not going to be able to, to stick it out in the field. Yeah, and I just think there's a, another very significant point that they make in, in Virus Mania, where they refer to um, a text that's uh, on all these areas of serious mistakes and fraud in the sciences, and they note that none of these were caught by peer review. And the actual track record of peer review on excluding the things it's supposed to exclude, uh, poor science or poor research, um, is not particularly compelling, but it is clearly a very effective institution at uh, indoctrination and exclusion. I appreciate the last paragraph, of course, which was about class struggle. And I hope that we will speak further on that. That is the way to go. That is the conclusion that is being drawn from Tom's um, um, uh, written piece here. Yeah, I kind of wanted to ask, what what is revolution going to look like in your mind but i don't know if we have time for that question because it's a big one <laughs> and i want to note that i do have some differences that i'd hope to get into with tom like we can talk about it in terms of the way the characterization of the go your own way the the full critique of it like there is a way that i think the go your own way thing is going to be necessary at this time um while it will not solve the problem and that that part i agree with um so that's just for a later day. Yeah. Well, on the following episodes. Tom? Yeah, yeah, I think um there's more than to be discussed clearly than we could we can manage. It was uh, ambitious, I suppose, to try and get it done in, in two. <laughs> oh, and we we again I do want to mention we didn't talk about the important criticism that you ra- raised in this article in not just the field of that as in the medical field, as it relates to the process of having, you know, making babies and the, the reproduction process, because um, that's been coming up as a growing theme and on our show. And I know we're that's we're going to be doing some future episodes that get in specifically to that. And I think the fact that you touched on that in in your article is really important. Well, uh, we look forward to part three, Tom. Uh, uh, it's something I'm constantly now. As I read, like, oh, my goodness, well, we're going to get to it and we're going to see how long it takes from here until next time. These Saturday mornings with you. (laughs) Waking up. This is not going to be an episode, but like, it's a struggle. (laughs) It's a struggle. (laughs) Well, I'll just say that people people may want to hear part three. It might be a little while, folks. I'm just going to tell you that. So just bear with us. As, as Marx himself said, uh, Eduardo, that there's no royal road to science, uh, and only him who is willing to uh, brave his, his daunting climbs can gain his luminous summits. So I appreciate your waking up to uh, discuss. <laughs> I, I <don't. laughs>
<laughs> if you always want to do an episode at 4 a.m. or 2 a.m. when I'm about to sleep, we can always do that. I'm not sure if the rest of the crew wants to do that. <laughs> Eduardo, when are you going to grow up? You live like a graduate student or an undergrad. He lives like a writer. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That's true. That's right. Okay. I spend time here in front of the screen, then I go to the garden at around 3 a.m. and then I come back out, come back inside. <laughs> garden at 3 a.m.? Oh, I don't have time during the day. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, well, thank you, Tom. That does it for this week's episode. Um, uh, we appreciate having Tom on this uh, week's episode. Tom Moore's work can be found in the magma, the organ of the... Uh, Netzwerk Linke Widerstand. Of which uh, Freie Linke Zunkoft is a part of. Uh, the Magma publishes chiefly in German, which is a small but expanding English section of both original work and material translated from German uh, for an English-speaking audience. Uh, English submissions for publication in the Magma are welcome for consideration. Those interested in the political orientation of the Freie Linke Zunkoft can also find its flyers. Please contact more uh, with any comments, criticisms, or questions at t.more.mohr.three at pm.me. Uh, and uh, we'll link uh, in the episode notes to uh, your essay on virology as ideology. What's Left is a weekly political podcast as channel challenging the mainstream left to post information about our topics and our guests in the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at what what's left podcast.com you can also find pod, past episodes to this podcast last channel there and connect with us i remind folks if you like anything you have heard here please subscribe rate review turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on uh spotify itunes podcast stitcher google play bitchute odyssey youtube or rumble and you can find any of those links uh to our blog and to those platforms and the episode notes where we found this podcast where you where we found this episode if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog, such as Jeff did with Tom's SAPs. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm Eduard Rock with co-host Jessica and Andy Lipson. Uh, we'll see you all next time. Thank you. Ciao.